Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard it in, of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. The word of the Lord. How are we? Good. Um, I love road trips. Do you love road trips? Yes. Yes. Seeing America. Um, What is the most important part of a road trip, save for perhaps the company? Anyone? The music is very important on a road trip, right? So uh, there's lists uh, all over the place. Rolling Stone, uh, Billboard, all of those publications. They have lists of the best ever road trip songs. Almost every time, number one or number two is Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. Uh, my, my wife, if we go on a road trip, she's going to want a 90s playlist for sure, right? There's going to be some third eye blind blaring in that car almost every time. Me, I, I, there's a song by a, a band called Sunvolt, and the song is called Windfall, and I want that song just playing on repeat uh, all the way through the whole trip. It, it makes me feel alive, right? The music is very important on a road trip. Um, I also just saw like Tommy Boy this week for the first time in many, many years. I don't know if you remember that movie. And there's uh, Chris Farley and David Spade are going on a road trip, and they're trying to find the right music on the radio, and they can't agree, but then The Carpenters comes on, and he's like, I can deal with it if you can. And then they cut to it, and they're just both singing with tears in their eyes, don't you remember you told me you loved me, baby? (laughs) It's just wonderful. I'd forgotten how great that was. The music is important on a road trip. So the psalm we're looking at today is Psalm 132. Uh, This is a song that was written for a road trip. Um, It's a whole group of psalms. Psalm 120 through 134 are all written like this. They're called the Songs of the Ascents, and they were written for road trips to Jerusalem. See, there were a few times a year when there would be festivals, uh, big religious parties in Jerusalem, and the people from all over the nation would have to travel there. And these were the songs that were written for their travels. They would sing them together on their way to Jerusalem. And the reason it's called the Psalms of the Ascents is because Jerusalem sits on several hills, and so they would be ascending as they sang these songs. And these songs were about their trip. They were about their God. They were about the city they were headed to. It was about their destination. They sang about about Jerusalem. And why is it that all these people would have to travel to Jerusalem for these festivals? Why not just celebrate back at home? Well, the reason is that the temple of God was in Jerusalem, and these people were going there to be near to the presence of God in the temple of God. So uh, those, that's our main question for today. We want, we want to talk about where is God's presence? Where does God live? 
Where can we find his glory? Where does God dwell? Those are the questions we want to address today. So this particular psalm, Psalm 132, we start off with a a quick reference to how God's temple was originally built. So start in verse 1. It says, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the, the mighty one of Jacob. So the temple started out as an idea of King David. Now let's get a little backstory here. Uh, after the Israelites were freed from Egypt, right? They were slaves in Egypt. God miraculously freed them. And uh, then he gave them his law. He gave them the Ten Commandments on these stone tablets so they could be a, a working civilization. After that, the people, uh, they're traveling all the time. They're wandering through the wilderness. And God wanted to be with his people. He wanted his presence to be near his people. And that already, I think, speaks something to the character of God. Some of you this morning probably struggle with the idea that God would ever want to be present and near to you, right? You think he probably seems like a, a distant deity, and he may intervene every now and again. You may throw up a prayer, and he may hear it. You don't know. But he seems distant. He seems far away. He seems apathetic. But that's not what the Scripture says. All the way through the Bible, uh, the idea of God is that he wants to be near us. He wants to be with us. He wants to be uh, abiding with his people. That's what he wants. And he wants more and more of it. So here's how he did it with his people as they were wandering about in the wilderness. He said, I want you to build me a tent. And he called the tent the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was uh, uh, basically an elaborate tent. It had several rooms in it. But he wanted that to be basically his dwelling place as the people traveled. And so wherever they went, they set up the tent and his presence was there. So uh, in the inner room of the tabernacle, God wanted them to build this one room that was going to be like his throne room uh, where his presence was going to be. And so he had this gold lampstand there, and it was shaped like a flowering tree, right? And it, it was always lit while, uh, while the tabernacle was set up. And he had this gold table, and he always wanted bread on it. And uh, that was to, to show the sign that, that God is the provider of life, right? He provides sustenance for his people. That's what that bread represents. And then he wanted them to build uh, this wooden box that was going to be overlaid in gold, and he called it the ark. Uh, Ark just means like carrying vessel. And he said, I want you to build me an ark, overlay it with gold, and you're going to put the Ten Commandments in there. You're going to put the law in there, our covenant together. This promise that I've made to you, uh, we're going to put it in there. And then I want you to build this lid, and this lid is also going to be covered in gold. It's going to be called the mercy seat. And there's going to be two statues of gold angels on this lid, and uh, this Ark of the Covenant, this is going to be like the footstool of my throne. My presence is going to be right above it. This is going to be my throne room, right? So this is a very serious room in the tabernacle. So that was the sanctuary of the people of Israel. Wherever they went, they would set these things up, and they would have this tent, and it would be their sanctuary. It would be where they performed sacrifices. It would be where the priests uh, led worship toward God, Wherever they went, this was the place of God's presence. This was the humble room in which heaven met earth, in which God's presence was among his people. So a number of years go by like this, right? The Israelite people, they wander through the wilderness. Uh, There is war, there is conquest, and all throughout it, they have this tent, this tabernacle where they would set up their sanctuary and where God's presence would dwell. Well, then by the end of it all, we get to King David, okay? So this this is the guy we're talking about right now, the guy whose idea of the temple was. We've got King David. And uh, he has, for the most part, been a, a really good king who has unified Israel. 
And uh, he, he has decided, I am going to set up my capital city in this place called Jerusalem. And more than that, I'm going to build a house for God because God is uh, bigger than a tent. He's better than that. I'm going to build this huge temple, this huge house that is going to uh, have the presence of God dwelling in it. That is, that is my desire, my heart's desire is what the scriptures say about it. He wants to make a dwelling place on earth for the almighty God. So David buys some land in Jerusalem, and he's, he's going to build it here. And it's on this place called Mount Moriah. Now, Mount Moriah, we've seen before in the, in the Bible. You may or may not uh, know about this or remember it. But way back before that, the patriarch of the entire Jewish people, this guy named Abraham, there was one time where God told Abraham, I want you to, uh, to take your son, your only son, up on this mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. And so Abraham, being a man of more faith than probably any of us, trusts God, and he takes his son up there, and he ties him up, and he's getting ready to sacrifice him. When God says, stop, I'm going to provide a substitute right now. I don't want you to sacrifice your son. There's going to be a wild ram, and it's going to be caught in this thicket, and you can use that and sacrifice that instead. So that's what they do. Sure enough, there's a ram in the thicket, and uh, Abraham's son Isaac gets to go free, and this ram is, is killed in his place and sacrificed there. And so this already, this mountain that David wants to build the temple on, this is already a holy place. It is already a place of sacrifice. It is a place of substitutionary sacrifice. It is a place of miracles. It is a place of, uh, of God's grace. It is an important place in the, in the Jewish uh, understanding of who God is. And so this is the mountain they're going to they're gonna build God's temple on his house. It's a perfect spot for a temple. So David then goes on a capital campaign, right? He's like, well, if we're going to build this thing, we're going to need a lot of money. We're going to need a lot of skilled craftsmen. We're going to need a lot of help. And so he goes out and he tells the people of Israel, listen, I want to build this house for God, this temple. And the people are like, yes, this is awesome. And so it says that they were incredibly generous. They just gave so many resources, so much money. Uh, craftsmen volunteered. It was wonderful. Everyone was ready to go. Everyone was on board. They thought this was a phenomenal idea. There was one trick. God then came to David and said, David, you're not going to be the one that gets to build my temple. He said, you're a man of war, you're a man of blood, you're a man of murder, and my kingdom is a kingdom of peace. And so I'm not going to let you be the one to build my temple. It's going to be your son, Solomon, who's going to build my temple. And I'm sure David was disappointed, dismayed. I would have been. But like a really faithful man, he says, okay, I understand. What I'm going to do, he, he doesn't just give up. He says, uh, I am going to prepare everything that I possibly can to get this ready for my son Solomon. Um, he said, I'm still going to line up the money. I'm still going to line up the craftsmen. I'm still going to line up the plan. All he's going to have to do is execute. I want desperately for this house to be built, and I'm going to help in any way the Lord will let me. So sure enough, uh, David dies, Solomon becomes king, and Solomon builds this temple. Uh, it was set up in much the same way the tabernacle was. So let me tell you a little bit about what it looked like. You guys ready to geek out on some architecture here? Yes! Get out the blueprints. All right, so the temple had an outer courtyard, right? Big, open outer courtyard. And then you would walk uh, through that into the inner courtyard. And inside the inner courtyard, uh, there was, the first thing you'd see was this huge altar, it was uh, 15 feet high, 30 feet wide. There was a fire inside of it that was always burning. This is where all the animal sacrifices were done. 
And according to Jewish law, there were quite a few animal sacrifices. So this, this was kind of like the oven. This was the place where all of the animal sacrifices would be done. And also inside the inner courtyard, there was this huge basin. It held 16,000 gallons of water, right? Huge basin. And it sat on top of these uh, statues of bulls. And the, the Bible calls it the sea. That's what they call it uh, when they're talking about it. So this big basin is called the sea. And then there's also these other little basins. And uh, they have carvings of lions and oxen and trees on them, of plants and, and vegetation. And they're all around the side of the temple. Now, the, why they need so much water? Well, there was also in the Jewish law, there's these ceremonial hand washings and body washings. And those were all done in those, uh, those basins of water. So that's what those are for. And there's also these two huge pillars and uh, these pillars had pomegranates carved into the side of them. And then the, at the top, they flowered like lilies. They looked like pomegranate trees that had beautiful blossoms at the top. So that's what's inside the, uh, the, inner, uh, the inner courtyard of the temple. And so then when you walk through the inner courtyard, there's also a building that was the temple sanctuary. This is where it starts to look a whole lot like the tabernacle. Uh, if you walked in to the building... Uh, you'd walk into a room called the Holy Place, and only priests were allowed in there. And uh, just like the tabernacle, there's a, a gold table for bread, but instead of one piece of bread, they had tons of bread on there. And that was still the, to symbolize that God is the provider of life, of sustenance. And then they also had not just one lampstand that was carved like a tree. They had 10 of them. They were going big. And so they had all these lampstands in there that were uh, carved to look like blossoming trees, beautiful stuff. Um, and then, at the center of the whole temple there, um, there was what was called the Holy of Holies. And this was the place, this was going to be God's throne room in the temple. And, and the Bible says it was like gold cube, right? The building, uh, or the room was overlaid in gold, and it was a perfect cube. And inside of that, there were these two huge statues of angels with their wings spread out. And then in the middle of that was where they were going to put the Ark of the Covenant. And remember that is. Uh, the footstool of God's throne room. His presence sits on its throne above that. And so that's how they built out this temple. It's a lot like the, the tabernacle. Um, and then only once a year ever would someone be allowed to go into that throne room. It was the high priest. And once a year he was allowed to make a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. So the people have disobeyed God and been wrong. And God has said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to uh, let you atone in a temporary way for your sins. So if you sacrifice an animal on the behalf of all the people and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, the ark, once a year, then I will just roll back the sins of the people and I will not unleash my wrath. And so that was the only time anyone was ever allowed in that room. Why is that? Because God is holy and he is just and he is glorious beyond our comprehension. And men and women in their sinfulness cannot stand before the real presence of God. We can't do it. We will, the, God himself says, if you look upon my glory in its fullness, you will be destroyed because there's a separation between us. We're sinful. And so he has put up barriers now, right? There's room after room and, and people can't just go into the presence of God. One guy, once a year, with blood on his hands. That's the only guy that can go in. So God, near his people, he wants to dwell with his people. Remember, he's so near now. He's got a, a room that is so near to all his people, and yet there still have to be barriers. So near and yet still so far. So close to dwelling with his people, and yet still separated. So why do I tell you all that? Why do we go into a, a description of architecture about the temple, right? Well, because it means something. 
the way it's built actually is supposed to symbolize something. Um, if you put it all together, remember there's a sea, there's an ocean, uh, there are uh, trees and pomegranates and vegetation everywhere, there are blossoming trees, there are oxen and lions, there are bulls. This is supposed to be like a little miniature world. It doesn't sound much like architecture when you actually listen to the description. It sounds more like a garden, doesn't it? It's on purpose. God is, is here having them build uh, a structure that is supposed to represent the Garden of Eden. So the Garden of Eden, at the beginning, at the beginning of time, the Bible says, uh, he created a perfect world. There wasn't this separation between God and man. It wasn't there. God and man, it said, could meet face to face. God would walk with the first people, Adam and Eve, in the cool of the day. They were friends. And they could, they could speak to each other face to face. There was just holiness and glory and joy everywhere. But Adam and Eve at one point rebelled against God. They didn't trust him. They went their own way. And because of that, the relationship was broken. Because of that, sin starts to ruin the world. It's not perfect and glorious and holy anymore. Uh, It's got sin in it, and it's ruining it. In fact, Francis Schaeffer, who's a a famous theologian, he, to describe our world now, he uses the phrase glorious ruin. You can still kind of see the shades of glory in it, right? There's still beauty in a sunset. There's still joy in creation. And yet it's not what it was. Things die. Things get sick. Things fall. They're broken. But in the temple, once again, God is showing that heaven can meet earth. The temple was a sign that the presence of God himself, the creator, the king of all glory, wanted to dwell on the earth again, just like he did in the Garden of Eden. He's not given up on us yet. He has not given up on us and let us just die in our sin. He's not given up on dwelling with us and among us on being with his people. And so he has built this as a sign that he wants for the Garden of Eden to happen again. He wants for people to be able to speak with him face to face. And so even, like, even minute architectural details like the entrance of the temple means something, right? The entrance of the temple was on the east. And so that actually means something. Uh, in the, the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, they got kicked out to the east of the garden. When God banished them and said, you're going to have to work and toil and deal with some of the consequences of your sin, he kicked them out to the east of the garden. And then he put two angels uh, in front of the entrance to guard it with flaming swords, it said, so they can't go back. And then after that, their son murdered somebody, and what happens? He gets banished from his family to the east, right? And, and the more people sin, the more they keep getting pushed further and further away from the place that had been God's presence, further and further east. But now what do we see? We see this temple where God's presence is, and he's, he's calling people to come back. You go from east to west to enter the temple to get close to his glory. And then when you walk into the the holy place, once again, you go from east to west. And then finally, to go into the holy of holies, that high priest would have to walk through those two large statues of angels, right? It is as if God is beckoning him back into his presence like in the garden and letting him pass through those angels with flaming swords at the gate. God desperately wants for people to be rejoined to him. He wants for heaven and earth to meet once again. But the temple's not just a sign of the way it was in the past. It's also very much a sign of the way God wants it now. He wants desperately, uh, not just for people to be able to come to him, right, by going into the temple. He wants, once again, for his glory, his presence to flood the earth. He doesn't want sin to be ruining anything anymore. He wants to make it new again. 
He doesn't want for any separation to happen anymore, for him to be behind these veils and these doors, these walls. He wants for everything to be wide out in the open and for everyone to be able to stand in his presence again and praise him face to face. That's what he wants. His intention was never for his glory and his presence to remain locked up. He doesn't want to stay separated. He wants for his presence to permeate the entire world again. Now the question is, how's he going to do it? Because it looks like right here, I mean, that's, that's a step in the right direction, right? The temple. He can actually have one person come in once a year. He can have people around his presence. That's a step in the right direction. But how is it that he's going to permeate the world again? Well, we start to see an answer in verses 11 and 12 of our passage. It says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit on your throne. So remember, it was David who chose Jerusalem as his capital city. It was David whose dream it was to build the temple. So these verses are saying that the Lord promised him, listen, uh, I am going to create a, a lineage of royalty from you, right? Your sons will be kings as well. They will sit on the throne. And if, if your sons keep my commandments and my testimonies, then they'll sit on the throne forever, It's a long time. That's a big promise. If your sons keep my commandments and my testimonies, they will sit on the throne forever. This is talking about Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus was a descendant of David. He was one of the sons of David in that royal lineage. And no one has ever really kept God's commandments or his testimonies like this is saying. It says, if you keep my commandments, then you'll you'll reign forever. No one did that except for Jesus. Jesus kept God's commandments perfectly. Jesus obeyed God's testimonies perfectly. He deserves to sit on the throne and reign over the world forever. He has earned his place on the throne, and the scriptures say that he will indeed reign forever, just like he's earned. And more than that, Jesus is another step toward God entering the world, dwelling with his people. Jesus is another step toward heaven and earth colliding. God himself... The eternal word was born as flesh and blood, earth, the stuff of matter mixed with the eternal spiritual God. In one man, heaven and earth was being joined. In fact, push a little further, Jesus claimed to be a living version of that temple that we just described. In John 2, Jesus is is, uh, in the temple and there's some guys that are swindling people, making a big profit off uh, off of taking advantage and he gets angry. And so he drives them away with a whip, which is pretty sweet. Um, and here it turns out Jesus is not quite the the hippie you thought he was Um, and here's what happens after that so the Jews said to him what sign do you show us for doing these things what they're saying is hey what authority do you have to kick people out of the temple show us a sign all right and he says destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up and the Jews then said it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is saying, I'm the temple now. I am the place where heaven meets earth. I am the place where God's glory dwells now. And you will destroy the temple, but in three days it's going to come back newer and better than ever. In Jesus, God was able to dwell in and amongst his people. And because of Jesus, our separation from God can be ended. Do you remember uh, what, what it took to go into the presence of God with that high priest? Blood had to be spilled. He had to take the blood of an animal and sprinkle it on, on the mercy seat, on God's throne. 
as an atonement for the sins of the people. But Jesus is the truer and better sacrifice here. Jesus, who was perfect and didn't deserve to die, his blood was spilled on our behalf, not just to atone for our sins and roll it back another year like this animal in the temple. No, Jesus' sacrifice was once for all time. His was good enough for the rest of eternity. When Jesus dies on our behalf, taking the death that we deserve, that means God is not going to make us die anymore. God is not going to hold his wrath, his eternal wrath against us anymore. It's been atoned for once and for all. And it says that when Jesus died, there was a curtain in his day that separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies. It says the, the curtain was torn in two when Jesus died. And that was God saying, no more does there have to be separation between me and man. No more. Because of what Jesus has done, we can be together again. We can be, uh, I can dwell in the midst of my people again. The barrier of sin is dealt with once for all. So you may be saying, okay, great. You're saying God now can dwell with his people. I don't see him. Where is he if that's the case? Great question. (laughs) And the scriptures answer it. The Bible says that because of what Jesus has done, uh, because of the price of our sin being paid for, uh, God's wrath being assuaged, our relationship restored, God's own spirit, he calls him the Holy Spirit, God's own spirit, since it's so close to us now, dwells so close to us, abides so close to us, that it says it dwells within us. That's how the Bible describes God's presence in us. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, Do you not know that you are now God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you? Again, God's intention the whole time has been to eradicate this barrier between man and God. He wants to be with us again. His goal the whole time has been to join heaven and earth again, to flood the earth with his presence and his glory, and this is how he's chosen to do it. See, at first he kind of sporadically spoke with humanity, and then we take a step forward, and he says, my special presence is going to be in the tabernacle, in the temple. I'll be really close to my people, but there's still going to be a separation. Then we take another step forward, and we have Jesus, God in the flesh, walking amongst people, talking to them face to face. And then since Jesus has given us grace, there is one more huge step forward, and now his spirit dwells within us, and through us he is spreading his presence throughout the world. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Friends, because of Jesus, we are now, all of us who are believers, we're many temples. We are now the dwelling place of God himself. We are the presence of God in the world. If you're a believer, God's spirit dwells in you, and God wants to interact with the world through you. He wants his characteristics, his grace, patience, kindness, peace, the things of God he has given to you now. He has placed his spirit in you so that you can offer those things to other people, so that you can offer God's presence to your family, to your community, to your city, to your world. He wants for us to spread his presence by going out and proclaiming the gospel and doing deeds of kindness and mercy and grace, the things of God in his name. Every action, every word, every thought is a chance for you to be a part of his restoration mission now. It is his plan for the world. It's your chance to continue to spread God's presence and his goodness throughout the world. Every single day you have that opportunity. What a privilege. What an honor. What a glory. So let me ask you, 
how are you seeing God spread his presence in the world through you? Are you at all? If you're not a believer today, or if you think back and you're like, I'm not sure if any of the things of God are being shown to the world, if the world's being changed through me at all, then maybe the question is, um, God, will you first start changing the world by changing me? God, will you reform my heart in grace so that I can take your presence, your goodness, your kindness to the world around me? Maybe that's the first question you need to start with today. So God is now, right now, changing the world through us, through his people, slowly but surely fulfilling his plan by using his people to fill the earth and to proclaim the gospel, to see his grace change hearts one at a time and change communities one at a time. Now, my next question is, will it ever be over? Is God ever going to complete this mission? Does he ever win? Does grace ever win? Will he finally succeed and dwell with us in the way face-to-face that he used to with Adam and Eve? And the Bible says emphatically, yes, he will. In verse 13 through 16 in our passage, it says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. And Zion is just another name for Jerusalem. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. That is a beautiful picture, is it not? God's goodness just all over the place. And it says he's going to dwell in Zion in Jerusalem forever. Is he dwelling there now? What's the deal with that? Well, the scriptures say that one day God is going to return in his fullness. His glory is going to come back to earth. And he's going to completely eradicate sin. He's going to judge it, and it will be gone. And he's going to remake and restore the things of this world again. He will do away with sin forever. He will restore his people. And here's how the Bible describes it in Revelation 21. The Apostle John uh, sees a vision of what's coming, of this, this end result of God completing his mission. He sees a vision of it, and here's how he describes it. He says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. That's what it's called, the new heaven, New Jerusalem. He said, I saw it coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And do you know how the Bible describes visually this new Jerusalem? It says it's like a big gold cube. You remember? The Holy of Holies? That was a big gold cube. This, it's like saying where God's presence dwelt before and had to be separated. Now, in a large way, God's presence, his holy of holy presence, now we're all invited in. Not just the high priest, we are all invited in now to live in the presence of God, to speak with him and to praise him and to enjoy him face to face. And there's no temple in the city because the whole city is a temple. God himself does not need a structure anymore. He is face to face with his people forever. And finally, God does not have to be separated anymore. He does not have to walk the earth meekly wrapped in flesh. He does not have to just interact with the world through his spirit in his people. His undistilled glory and presence will fully flood the earth. He will will speak to his people face to face and heaven and earth will become one again, just like the Garden of Eden. All along, Ever since sin first broke into the world, 
the relationship between God and mankind broken, God has been working his one singular plan to rejoin heaven and earth and to once again fill the world with his presence and his glory and his goodness and for us to enjoy it. All the way back from that substitutionary sacrifice that we see uh, with Abraham and Isaac on the mountain, all the way to God living amongst his people in the, the tabernacle, in the temple, all the way to God being wrapped in flesh and joining himself to humanity in the form of Jesus, all the way to his Holy Spirit indwelling his people so that we can spread his presence through the world, all the way to the day when he will return in his glory and make all things new again and will proclaim, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That has been his one singular mission, to save us even as we rebel against him, so that we can enjoy his presence again forever, so that he can speak with us face to face and have a relationship again. It is as if he's saying, my plan all along has been to dwell with you. And it's always, it's always required death and blood to do it. But in Christ's death, in Christ's resurrection, all things are made new forever. Friends, that's beauty. That is glory. That is joy. That's wonderful. And for those of us who are in Christ, that's our future. That's our future, sure as the sun is setting tonight. That's our future. And just as the ancient Israelites would sing songs on their way to the presence of God, these songs of the ascents, they would sing them, anticipating being near to the presence of God in Jerusalem. Friends, we're on our way. We're on our way to God's presence once again. It is a sure future, and we're on our way. And so we can sing with expectation and hope and joy today. And in small ways, we can go out into the world and we can be a signpost of the thing to come in the way that it's going to be full of glory and goodness and mercy and peace and joy. We can offer those things to our world now through the power of the Holy Spirit. So today, we're going to have one reflection question. That's it. I want you to think about it. How is God changing the world right now through you? How does God want to use you right now as his presence on earth? I want you to think about it. I want you to pray, for him, pray to him for help and pray to him uh, for guidance and for power and for wisdom. So let's pray and then we'll take some communion together after we take some time to pray over this. Lord, thank you. You have uh, not given up on us and we're, we're grateful. We don't deserve your presence. We deserve to be separated from you. And yet, in your goodness and your kindness and your mercy, you pursue us still. And you want to dwell with us, to live with us, and to give us every joy. Thank you. We love you. Help us today. We want to show that to the world right now. The, the things that are beautiful eternally, grace, generosity, patience, help us to show those to the world right now, to be a different kind of people, to be a people who fight against the tide of sin, against the tide of selfishness and greed, the ways of the world. Help us to offer hope and grace and peace to see this world look more and more like the one to come, the one that will be pure joy. Help us. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.